0: Okay, as promised, we're going into 2nd Peter tonight. 2nd Peter, not 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, chapter number 2. 2nd Peter 2. Now, this is the expanded edition of Jude. All right. It's, it's got more detail. And I personally believe that Peter wrote first. And some people in theological circles think that, well, maybe Jude wrote first. But Peter said false teachers will come, and Jude said they're here. And to me, that sounds like a distinction between the two. Uh, Jude tends to take what Peter wrote here in that order, and he condenses it. And he adds a few extra pieces that Peter doesn't. But Peter has a lot to say in chapter number 2. And it just, the way I'm working out the sermon series, we hit them both about the same time when it came to the descriptive passage. And so Peter gave a whole chapter of it, and Jude went from five, verse 5 through verse 16, with about the same information. There's much more here in Second Peter, and uh, so we're going to dig a little deeper and and the little ears aren't with us that draw my little pictures every week, so I'm not going to get some morbid-looking pictures for my, my wall now, so um, that's okay with me. So, Second Peter 2, we're going to hit the first three verses tonight. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who would secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's kind of a condensed verse 4 out of Jude. All right, these three verses here. So we're going to dig into these. Heavenly Father, help us with our study here tonight. And beyond helping us, give us an understanding uh, that we might be well prepared uh, for the potential of false teachers and uh, that we might know well what we're looking for. This is a good passage for us to study, and I ask that you help us here tonight. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This was one of my favorite stories. It came during the days of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, the um, evangelist back in the uh, 1700s or so, uh, he was ministering in Cornwall, England, and he went up into the coal mines in order to speak to some of the miners there about their faith. And he walked up and he found this miner, and he came up to him and he says, um, What do you believe? And the miner says, oh, I I believe what my church believes. And Whitfield said, well, what does your church believe? And the miner said, we believe the same thing. (laughs) That went far, didn't it? (laughs) We believe the same thing. How do you go from there? There's a problem in our, our world today. When people say they believe something, but they don't know what they believe. We tell them have faith, but we don't tell them what to have faith in. They just have faith. I mean, they think, isn't that sufficient to have belief without knowing what you believe? Uh, to let somebody else tell you what you believe. And you just kind of say, oh, well, my church's got that covered, so it's okay. I just go there. But they'll take care of all the spiritual stuff. That'd be a frightful way to live. And unfortunately, I think it is very common in our day still, that people have no idea. If you ask them, what do you believe? They might just simply say, what my church believes. What my church believes, without being able to spell that out better. This morning I read to you some verses, but one I did not read to you was from Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And Matthew 7, verse 15 was a warning that Jesus gave. And you're going to... See it and say, Boy, that sounds awfully familiar. Um, Matthew 7, great passage to study. That's another one of those. If we get the chance, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will take us several years, no doubt, to study that section, but I'd love to do it. Verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You don't want them in your flock. They look like sheep, but they don't act like sheep. They, they eat sheep. Jesus warned about that. And I think that might have been on Paul's mind later when he was talking to the Ephesus elders, as we brought them up this morning in Acts chapter 20, when he says, I know that when I leave, they're coming. The wolves are coming and they're going to be in among the flock. And remember where they're coming from? Inside, among you. And that's kind of a scary thing. But here, when Peter starts to address it, in Second Peter, chapter number 2, these three verses, he's talking about first false prophets. And he says it in a simple way, the false prophets arose among the people. That's Israel, that's Old Testament. He says, that was true. And my, do we know that's true. We have all kinds of Old Testament references that they knew it well. The false prophet was among them. And he says, that is a reality. The false prophets also arose among the people. Just as, and this is where he turns that corner to his congregation and says, there will also be false teachers among you. It's inevitable. He didn't say there might be. I would prefer I might be, wouldn't you? At least I give you a little place to say, well maybe not. But he said they will be. And I thought about that. Why would the Lord have that to be the case? Why would the Lord allow such a thing? Jude had to deal with it, Peter had to deal with it, Timothy had to deal with it, Titus had to de- why why did the Lord allow false teachers among the people? Think it through for a minute. One, that way the genuine believers will be more serious about studying God's Word. They'll be more serious about God's Word. I think that they will also be more dependent upon the Lord. If you know it's coming, don't you prepare for it? And then you do everything you're supposed to do to stay safe in that. We get warnings, you know, of these tornadoes that come around from time to time. And the warnings are supposed to be sufficient for us to get to a safe place. There is a certain procedure to do. For us, it's always go get the dog. You know, we end up with the dog in the church basement. I don't know if you guys know this, but we we bring the dog here because there's a little girl that lives over here that hates dogs. And if we take the dog into the school, then her problem's worse than a tornado. Little Hallie just doesn't want the dog around her. So that we said, well, we're just bringing the dog here." So it was one one week, I think it was last year or so, one of these storms cropped up real quickly, and uh, we said, "Oh, we got to go. We had a pizza in the oven. And what do you do with that? you got a pizza in the oven. You just don't turn it off and leave it. So we finished the pizza, and we brought the pizza over here, and the dog and the cat, and we're having a pizza party in the basement. Join the and it was like flying by and everything. And we said, well, we're comfortable. And uh, that, that was the one time the cat was tied up and the dog was free. Usually it's the other way around. But uh, we we make preparations when we know there's danger. That's what smart people do. And I think the Lord even allows false teachers. Number one, he he is not worried about the end result of his church. He knows the end result of the church. The church will make it through. The church will stand before him like a bride adorned for her husband. The church will be spotless and blameless and all those things. Those are the promises that he's given to us, and he knows it's going to happen. But he also knows that we need our faith stretched. To the point where we trust him and we go to him and rely upon him in the midst of danger. And so our shepherd's not afraid to feed you in the presence of your enemy. He's not afraid of that. Because he can handle the enemy. Sheep can't handle the enemy. There's nasty little wolves and stuff out there. But sheep can't handle it, but the shepherd can. He says, just stay close to me. So, in this picture, he's allowing this to happen. It's going to happen. False prophets came into existence. That was a reality. And the second reality is, just like that, false teachers will exist too. And they're coming. And they will introduce, in a stealthy, stealthily way, a deviant way even, choices. And that's a definition of a word here. Choices. We have the word here. Secretly introduce destructive heresies. They're going to give you heresies. Choices. Our world thinks that choices are good. Give us lots of choices to pick from. And yet, we know from God's word, when it comes to salvation, there's only one choice. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not if, option two or three or four, is there? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Only our world doesn't like that message, folks. You know that? <laughs> they said that's not fair. We have to have sobriety here. We have to have everybody get a say here. Everybody can be saved through a way. That's not the way God designed it. But false teachers work that way. Choices of destruction. And they deny the master who bought them. We got that again in verse number 1 here. And they bring swift destruction upon themselves. Now, tonight I'm going to walk through a description in these three verses of what a false teacher looks like. There are nine characteristics given in these first three verses. Nine characteristics. And we're going to walk through them as we go through this passage. This is what's interesting. Before I even start on number one, the last thing we talked about in Peter's letter was the value of God's word, right? We saw it in the end of chapter number one. It was talking about, know this first of all, verse 20, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And we say, yes, yes, that's absolutely true. So even while we're talking about the truth, the false teachers come into the picture and they malign the truth. It's just fascinating how it starts, verse number one of chapter two, but, and that links us with the last thought. The last thought was, yes, there are true apostles and true teachers of God's word. But there are also false prophets, and there's false teachers of God's Word. Both of them do exist. And so, as we start talking about these false teachers, you will find something interesting about them. The nature of a teacher, Peter taught us this earlier in the previous chapter, the nature of a teacher is to repeat himself. The valuable part of teaching is to repeat it until they know it. Repeat it so well that when the teacher leaves the room, they still know it. And that's what Peter was saying. Earlier, he said in verse number 12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present in you, he doesn't consider it wrong at all. He considers it right to keep on the same theme as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that, just the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, He says, I'm not going to be here much longer. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will be also diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. A good teacher will teach you well with repetition so that you know it, so that you can carry on with it. Well, guess what false teachers do? Same technique. Repetition, repetition. Our world does that. Social media does that. News does that. Don't they? They just keep beating it in your head until you think that must be right. False teachers They teach false doctrines. They impress with a repeated statement or admonition. They teach persistently. They teach earnestly. They're serious about what they're doing. They want you to accept their idea. They want you to believe it too. And so that makes it harder for us because if we're just looking at the way in which one teaches, the way is the same. At least it should be. D.L. Moody used to say that anybody who bores a child in Sunday school has sinned. Think about that one. I mean, that's that means you're going to put some work into teaching Sunday school. But, I don't know, I didn't find that verse in the Bible. But anyway, that's what he used to say. Um, but when we teach God's Word, shouldn't our hearts as well as our brains be engaged? I mean, we're teaching God's Word. I'm not teaching you you know, the latest thing in geometry. I'm just dealing with something precious to us. And so I, I think as a teacher, you should invest yourself in the teaching. And false teachers do that too. Matter of fact, that charisma somewhat, if you want to call it that, is what attracts so many people to them. And the way they say it so authoritatively, it sounds like they know what they're talking about. And then they twist the words, just enough, it sounds right. And you're not too sure. And those who are gullible, guess what? Boom, they fall for it every time. So the false teacher, we can't spot him that way too easily. But these nine things we're going to cover here tonight will show you a little bit clearer what you're looking for. Alright? First one, you will notice them by their offer. By their offer. It says in this verse, number one, They secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will introduce them. They will usher them in. They will give you choices or options of destruction. The way you describe this word in the Greek is that they actually are like, it's like they're carrying it in the door. They're carrying it in and they're setting it alongside what you have right? Usually they don't walk in and say, hey, you're all wrong. I'm going to give you something new because automatically your concern goes up and you say, "Uh uh-uh. But if they carry in a suitcase that looks just like your suitcase and they set it right beside yours, then you say, oh, there's something here that looks similar. They carry it in alongside of what you already have. That's the tricky part about this is that Usually, to replace something, they play that little shuffle game where they carry in the stuff that looks like yours, and we accept it because we say, "Well, that looks just like ours. It looks just like ours." If a Jehovah Witness walked in here tonight, we would say, "Oh, we're on our guard." If somebody else came in here and we don't know their background, we would say, "Well, they look right. They're carrying a Bible." They, they put on reading glasses when they read. Whatever. We just say, it looks like us. And we're not careful. Well, the way these guys do it, watch this, it's always tricky. That's the point. It's tricky. They come in, the way they offer it to you is they bring in choices to what you have. That sounds like you're okay to choose from A or B. That's how they offer it to you. And yet their choice is always destruction. Isn't that bad news? You pick the wrong one and you're in trouble. They destroy. They don't edify. They don't build up. They tear up. And we talked about that this morning. But watch how they offer it. If they set it next to yours and they do a lot of talk, like, oh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Be on your guard. Because you want to know that it's the same thing. Don't take their word for it. Investigate it. I've mentioned this before, but I'm well aware of a school right now that's having that very problem. They hired a president to come in and teach them, and he agreed to all their doctrinal information, and what he has introduced there is not the same. And as a result of that, he's gotten rid of all the teachers that were part of the old doctrine. And he says, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing because they're sending everybody out the door telling them they can't agree with our doctrinal statement anymore. It is so, so rotten. It's messed up the whole school. And that's happening even right now. Even right now, this is happening. And it bothers my heart a great deal. But that's what he has done. He's introduced something that's contrary to the truth, but so close to it that everyone thought it must be the same. And it's not. And it's frightful to me. I'm not going to go into all that story, but it's quite a story. But that is true. Watch how they offer. Number two, notice, you will notice them by their manner. Peter says by their manner. They will introduce in a stealthy way, here it says, in a secret way, a stealthy way, in a deviant way, in a, in a way that's inconsistent with truth. You don't have to sneak up on somebody with truth. Truth is to be spoken in love, right? Truth is truth. But these folks apparently know that what they're giving you is different. So they have to sneak it in. I'm afraid we've gotten too used to this whole idea anyway when When we were told how many years ago was this ten maybe when we were told in our country that we're going to get a a new medical program government wise insurance and all that kind of stuff, how did we ever learn about it? You've got to pass it first, and then you could read it. How many people did that alarm? It's like, what? (laughs) you got to be kidding. Sneaky. And cover it with lots of words so nobody sees the fine print. You know, I, I love that on the TV when they do those lawyer commercials and they have this much fine print that if you're standing next to your screen and looking at it, you can't read it. And it's done in 10 seconds anyway. You can't get through it. But to me, it's like, what are you hiding? What's in that that I don't know that's going to hurt me? When they're bringing something in a sneaky way, doesn't that concern you? You ever see your kids sneak across the house and you say, all right, what are you up to? And they say, nothing? You know they're up to something because of the manner in which they do it. Here it says that they come in a sneaky way. That's a manner in which they do it. Anytime you have to get something past the congregation, and you have to do it in a sneaky way, it's contrary to what God has designed the church to be. It's contrary. Jesus never was sneaky. And yet false teachers do that because there are people who will spot the difference. So that's item number two. Number three, you will notice them by their message. Now you thought, well, that should have been first, but actually, it's very well to say it here because we've already seen a couple of ways they're working. But now you examine their message. Their mes- message. What is it? Well, right in the middle of verse one, they introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. Their message. You can't separate that from behavior. I, I've been trying to show you that anyway. But here's what, what's interesting: they they go after authority. We saw this in Jude too, didn't we? Denying the Lord, denying the Lord, denying the Lord. If we truly believe the Lord is Lord, are we not going to do what He says? That's what Scripture says. Don't call, Jesus said, "Don't call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say," right? Well, these people say, well, then let's not call him Lord. That's not wise. But that's part of their message. And sometimes they don't say it so blatantly, do they? But you've got to be careful about a message. This is characteristic of it. A characteristic of it is that they deny the master who bought them. Peter could write that because Peter was there that day. When he denied the Lord three times, he says, I know what that is. And I think he probably has a hard time writing that sentence. Denying the master. But he says, that is exactly what these people do. This is, they deny that they've been bought for the price. So it goes more than just the identity of the Lord. It goes into his activity too. He died on a cross. He paid the price of His blood. He died for us. We all know that's important, don't we? That's key to our doctrinal understanding. They deny some things along that line. No, it's not really that way. How often it says, they say, well, that's not really the way you translate that verse or something like that. Let me show you something. Go over to 1 John. It's just a couple of pages away. 1 John chapter 4. And look at the first three verses with me, just for a minute. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that is coming, and John says, and now is already in the world. You test them on the identity and the work of Jesus Christ. You take them to that place. You could do that. You could go talk to your... uh, Jehovah Witness friends, if you've got any friends in the Jehovah Witness group, if they come in and they start talking to you, ask them, who's Jesus Christ? And it gets right to the point. They'll take you to John 1.1, won't they? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's the New World Translation. And they say, that's what it says in the Greek. And of course, I would say, show me. And they'd pull out their Greek if they even had it, but they don't. And they don't even know Greek for that. But I could pull out mine and I could say, look, lesson time. And you start walking them through that passage. It doesn't call him a God. Matter of fact, the whole context says he is God. Matter of fact, who created the world? God did. And yet it says in that same chapter that he created the world. All things came into being through him. right? You can take them to Colossians, which their New World Translation did not fix. And Colossians chapter 1 declares the deity of Jesus Christ, and they did not prepare for that one. And you take them right there. Read it in their own translation, because it's word for word like yours. And then suddenly ask them, so who is Jesus? It says right there, he is the exact. Representation of God. He is God. He's created the world. All things are made by Him. All made things were made for Him. It's all there. But see, they're taught by their gurus to believe that Jesus is not God. He's a God. He's an under God. He's, he's just, He's not the main. So what they do is they manipulate the words. But guess who it's centering around? Jesus Christ. You could do that with almost any of the cults. Many of them just take Jesus Christ out of the picture altogether. Some just call him a good prophet or such like that. But that's the place to start. And this is what John says to his readers. He says, talk to them about Jesus. I mean, you could talk to them about church fellowship. You could talk to them about, you know, uh, Sunday afternoon lunch, chicken or whatever you got. You could go anywhere else you want and you can find agreement. But take them to Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying here in Peter's letter, is you would notice by their message, the first thing that pops up is their understanding of who Jesus is. And what do they do? They deny him. They deny him. That's That we have to watch for, because, folks, this is the sad part that goes with that in verse number one, is that they bring upon themselves swift destruction. They do have an end. By the way, we say, well, let's get rid of false teachers. But you know what? These are souls that are going to be forever destroyed into the lake of fire. They're going to be gone there forever, alive and well. Not well, but alive in the lake of fire forever. These people need Jesus. So often we say, get out of my house, get out of my porch, right? Keep them away. Keep them away. Yes, they're scary people, but don't forget, their end is destruction. And if there's something you can say about Jesus to them, remember, it's God who saves, not us. And if we speak about the Lord and speak through His Word, and the Holy Spirit's at work, even the false teacher can be saved. But this guy, this is his end result. So don't forget, in the message that he's proclaiming to you, Primarily, he's denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Observe as well. What number are we on? Four. Four. Okay. Notice their behavior. Note You will notice them by their behavior. We're going to jump down a little ways. Verse number two. Many will observe that as... Oops, wrong page. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Notice their behavior. Many will observe as their guide their outrageous behavior. They have behavior that's identified as outrageous. Sensuality is the word that some translations have. Harmful, you might have. Uh, You might have shameful You might have immoral. You might have lascivious. Uh, There's a variety of words trying to describe what is outrageous. What is outrageous? The Amplified Version says it's licentiousness and lasciviousness together. That sounds really bad, doesn't it? (laughs) But they're just trying to describe what kind of behavior is this. Jude is full of that. And like I said, we've been seeing that. In the way he compares it. But Jude and Peter are not alone in this description. Go to Titus for a minute. Back up a little bit. Thessalonians. You can find that. Timothy. You can find that. Titus is after Timothy. 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 1. Look at verse uh, 10 and 11 for starters. For there will be many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Jump down to verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You gotta write yuck right next to that verse. I don't know if that's a theological word, but it sounds like it fits. Uh, 2 Timothy, just back up to chapter 3, just a few pages before. Look at this list. It's actually 1 through 9. We're gonna, I'm gonna read it fast. But watch, these are these men. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. They go into households where they captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, carried on by various lusts. They're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jump down to verse number 9. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. You can spot them by their behavior. Look at it. Is it in keeping with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Isn't that who we're supposed to be like? And you say, well, that guy's not acting like Jesus. Guess what? That should be a warning flag. That should be a warning flag. You see this and you say, ooh, what do we do about that? Notice them by their behavior. Uh, number five, right? You will notice them by the way they handle Scripture. By the way they handle Scripture. It says in verse number 2, And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. The way of truth will be maligned. They will blaspheme. That's the word. It's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Blaspheme. Truth. They will blaspheme. They will speak evil of truth. They will malign it. They will disrepute it. They will defame it. They will revile it. They will blaspheme it. Treat it like it's irreverence. That's a sad thing to do. But once you start pulling away from the pages of God's Word, what else is there? If you don't want God's Word to govern your life, then discredit it. That's what the liberal theologians did for years. They didn't want to hold themselves up to God's word and obey it. They thought they were too smart for that, for whatever reason. So they started to say, well, Moses didn't really write that book. Isaiah, well, there were three different Isaiahs that wrote that book, and they all lived in different places. And Jonah's not a true story. And miracles? No, that doesn't happen. You know that, miracles. Are you kidding? You fall for that stuff? And they stripped it away of its supernatural power. They stripped it away of its miracles. They stripped it away of its genuineness. They took the authors out of it and said it was written by X, Y, or Z, or ABC, or somebody else. And they put numbers and letters instead of authors. And as a result, we had a whole generation of people come along saying, I don't even understand this anymore. What did it do to the people who heard it? It confused them, and then they distrusted this book. I know when I was in, in in school, we had to learn all that stuff on Canon and everything else. And to be honest with you, as a freshman or junior right there at Moody Bible Institute, learning all that stuff, I came out of there, I was perplexed. And I'm sitting there with my head spinning with all this information, and I said... How do we ever know if God's word is true, if all of that has to be considered before we say it's true? And it was hard to wrap my brain around. It was hard to understand all that information. And then I realized that the Lord was saying, just trust me. (laughs) Read it and believe it. And that gave me such peace in my heart. And that wasn't out of ignorance. Ignorance. That was just trusting that this was his word. You'd have to stand there. But if you're already in, inundated with people telling you, it's not true, it's not true. Matter of fact, even Second Peter was considered suspicious by some. Oh, it couldn't have been written. Interesting. That's the book that confronts them. What better book to discredit than the one that points out the ones who are doing it? But nevertheless, We have that issue. The way they handle Scripture is they defame it, they revile it, they blaspheme it, they treat it as irreverent. Uh, There was a time when the secret sensitive movement was getting rather big that um, the admonition from the pulpit was don't bring your Bible to church with you because the guy sitting next to you might not have one and then you'll feel bad. Isn't that crazy? What's that like saying, okay, army, don't carry your guns with you, because that guy next to you might not have one. That's unsafe, doesn't it? I mean, we carry God's word, we open God's word, we study God's word. The false teacher wants you to avoid it, to push it aside, don't believe it. He even goes so so far to discredit and blaspheme it. Watch for that. Anytime they start tampering with God's Word and saying, you just can't believe what you're reading, let the flag fly. Alright? That was number five, wasn't it? We're moving along, aren't we? Number six, you would notice them by their followers. Their followers. Verse two, many will follow their sensuality. I hate that word many right there. Not because it's in God's word. Okay, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, why does it have to be many? Why can't it be few? Unfortunately, many is the right word. And they will follow. They will follow. That's why it concerns me many times when crowds really get really big in in church settings. And you say, what's happening here? Alright, the world flocks to certain things. We're supposed to be examples to the flock, aren't we? Pastors are. First Peter, he said that in chapter five. He says, Be an example to the flock. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be that. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy four twelve, he says, Show yourself to be example to those who believe. Uh it's because people follow. And that's what's true. For everyone who goes into leadership, there's got to be followership. I made up that word, but I think it fits. Followership. There's followers for every one leader. There has to be. Many will observe as their guide these people's outrageous behavior. That's from the Greek in verse 2. That will be their guide. Here's the thing. They're going to look at that guy and say, oh, that's the way to do it. And if he's leading them astray, guess where they're going? Down the broad path, right? Where many will be. Once I was speaking to a folk, uh, a guy he calls me up. Uh, I was um, looking into some church ministry opportunities. And he calls me up and he says, Well, um, we're looking for a pastor and we want to talk to you about our church a little bit. And I said, Okay. Well, he said Michigan, and that automatically was like, I'm not going there, right? (laughs) Anyway, I grew up on the shores of Michigan. I said, "Uh, uh, that's that's not my place. But anyway, I said, all right, I'll listen to you. And he says, well, we we have a a bit of a uh, situation here at our church. Um, Ninety percent of our church is made up of divorcees. I said, okay, that's a pretty high number. That's not normal numbers. They said, well... Our pastor was too. And I said, oh, because pastors lead by example. And there was one, I got a call this week, a pastor who, uh, he's looking for counseling. And I didn't get it from him. I got it from another source who said, can we give him your name? All right. I said, well, maybe. Uh, but uh, he's divorced. His wife left him. He stayed in the ministry, which I, I'm a little concerned about that because I'm trying to set an example, right? And thats I'm not saying anything about the whole situation, just that for me personally, I think that's setting an example. But he chose to stay in the, And then he started to date another lady, and he brought her into the church, and she joined the church and stuff. And apparently there's more to this story than just that. And now he's in a lot of trouble. And I'm thinking, uh, where do you start? You, you've got to help a guy who's supposed to be the example to the flock, and he's a good example of something. I always call it how not to do it. But that's his mess. And that's... That's true of the false teacher I've I just shown you. They have outrageous behaviors, and many will observe that as their guide. They'll say, if it's good for him, it's good for me. And many of the problems in today's churches can't be traced to this pulpit. Not this one here, but that's the ensis. Where the pastor goes, the people follow. It's just reality. It's scary to me. Imagine this for a minute. Let me give you a, a case. You have a church drifting away from what's right. It's no longer orthodox, and it's thinking, it's leaning more toward those liberal ideas of denying sin and denying the deity of Christ and such like that. And you put a pastor in there who's a skeptic, right, He doesn't believe it anyway so he's standing up there and he's teaching now the church is full of young people and they're sitting in there and they're enthralled with the message of this old pastor who's a skeptic in a church that stepped away from the truth and sitting in one of these rows is a man named Charles Darwin and where did that lead? that's the true story it's a true story I said ouch they said the tadpole of Darwinism was hatched in a pew of an old chapel in High Street, Shrewsbury. Hatched in a pew. Listening to that. That's their followers. You've got to notice them by their followers. That's important to look at too. Uh, next one. You will notice them by their passion. Start in verse number three. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What passion. They operate with a covetousness. The word greed is in the New American Standard Version. A greed. A greed for what? Power? Money? Yes. Those are the two big ones, aren't they? Power and money. Power and money. They take advantage of other people. Doesn't it say that? They will exploit you for their power, for their greed, for their desire for wealth. An improper look of this. They, they're excessive in their desires for riches. They're grasping for it. They're overreaching for it. Does Peter ever say anything about that? First Peter chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, verse 1, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, also partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, and yet not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Here he says, "Look at their passion. They operate with greed. Greed. They gotta get, grab it, grab it, grab it. There's a scheme in that. In order to get it, they have to plot. How are they going to get it? And there's a scheme behind it. They, there's a demand that goes with it. They, 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 they may even give you some sort of credit, but that man, that's conferred to you with a very tricky bait hanging." Watch it. They exploit you. They don't do it by themselves. They take advantage of their flock to get what they want. That's dangerous. They exploit their own people. There's something in Scripture that talks about shepherds who eat their sheep instead of taking care of them. And this is the same kind of a picture here. They operate with an urgency. They operate with a persistence. Kind of like that person who wants to sell you a warranty for your car. (laughs) Have you ever got that call? It's every single day. Are you tired of it yet? It's like, oh. (laughs) Well, Peter says, look out. (laughs) Look out, folks, because guess what? Their passion is showing. Their passion is not for you. Their passion is for themselves. It's a greed. Let me give you the next two, because our time's just about up. You will notice them by their deliberate deceiving. It's deliberate. They lie through their teeth. That's not the authorized version, I don't think. But they exploit you with false words. False words. Fabricated words. It's actually the word we use to mold plastics. You fabricate it. You run it through the machine and produce it. But you know what? This is words that they're using. Stories they make up. uh, um, False arguments that they argue with. They think they're pretty clever. But they're making gain of you when they do that. They're bringing these false words and it hurts you. You are their product. You are their merchandise. You're what they want. They're going to manipulate and make gain of you. Make merchandise of you. That's the Greek word there. They're going to do that with false words. That's sad. That's, that's terrible, actually. Um, the last one, I've got to cover this quickly. You will notice also, folks, that they will be punished. The very last phrase you see in verse number three, their destruction is not asleep. As Jude said, their destruction is of old. It was already prophesied. God's already designed this one. But it's not unemployed. It's not put on the shelf and disregarded, and God says, well, we've got to get a different plan for these guys. It's not working. God is sticking to his plan. He has an end destination for the false teacher you can be very confident and very comfortable with the fact that you will not have false teachers in heaven with you. Not unless they've been converted by the Lord and they're changed. But if they've never come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, they will be destroyed. That's what Peter says. That's what Jude says. That's the end result. That means the Lord is still watching, and in the end, the church comes through and the false teacher doesn't. There's security for us in that. There's hope for us in that. And I I find that comforting and yet scary because their destruction will not slumber. It will not slumber. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who made a comment like that. He said many years ago, Thomas Jefferson, I fear for my country when I think about the fact that God's justice does not slumber. That's quite a statement. So, that's a good start for the picture. And you say, now what do we do about all this? And Peter says, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. Keep growing, folks. Keep growing. Don't stop growing. Keep growing. Because we have to know him. We've got to know his book. Because they're bringing us all kinds of junk. And if we're not solid in Christ, we will fall from our steadfastness. That's in chapter 3, 17 and 18. We will fall to false teaching. I don't want to be there, and I don't want us to be there, and I don't want you to be there. So this is our warning passage, and now we know what we're looking for, right? Woo, what a section this is. Okay, Peter's ink still wet. Do you feel that? <laughs> it's like, whoa, but this is still true. Okay, we are going to stop right here. Okay. Brian, would you close us in prayer please?